One of the things that preachers like to do is to quote authors. So today I want to start by quoting Judith Viorst. Now, anybody know who she is? Well, she's the author of Alexander and the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day. Permit me a short excerpt. I went to sleep with gum in my mouth, and now there's gum in my hair. And when I got out of bed this morning, I tripped on the skateboard, and by mistake, I dropped my sweater in the sink while the water was running, and I could tell it was going to be a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. At breakfast, Anthony found a Corvette Stingray car kit in his breakfast cereal box, and Nick found a junior undercover agent code ring in his breakfast cereal box. But in my breakfast cereal box, all I found was breakfast cereal. I think I'll move to Australia. In the carpool, Mrs. Gibson let Becky have a seat by the window. Audrey and Elliot got seats by the window too. I said I was being scrunched. I said I was being smushed. I said, if I don't get a window by the seat, or seat by the window rather, I'm going to be carsick. No one even answered. I could tell it was going to be a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. If you want to know how it ends, get the book. But what does that have to do with Psalm 23? Well, let me see if I can explain. Psalm 23 is this beautiful, faith-filled, comforting psalm. It's familiar, it gives hope, and it gives hope through reflections and the thoughts of David, the one who God referred to as a man after his own heart. Now, I wanna be careful here. I know and believe firmly that it is inspired scripture. It was inspired by God and given to us through the vessel of David. But I can't help ask the question. David, when you wrote this, were you just having a good day? I mean, maybe it was a beautiful spring morning, baby lambs frolicking in the grass around him, no predators in sight. Everyone is accounted for. Papyrus journal in hand. Ah, yes. The pastures are green, the waters are still, and the paths are righteous. Just another day in paradise. Anything but a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. But let's look at some of the other stuff that David wrote. Let's just try Psalm 22. It's not chronological, but it's something that he wrote. Verse 1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Go down a little further, verses 6 and 7. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads, whatever that is. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue, for he delights in him. What a great joy to be mocked. And then verse 14 and 15. I'm poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a pot shared, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. Ever had a day like that? Or a week or, or a year? It sounds like a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day on steroids. It's like a walk through the valley of the shadow of death. You know, as a staff, we've been studying a book by a gentleman named Peter Scazzaro. It's called Emotional Healthy Discipleship. And as I was preparing for today, there was a portion of it that, that really stood out to me. So I want to read it to you. 
It says half to two-thirds of the 150 psalms are classified as laments. The laments never flinch in paying attention to the reality that life can be hard, difficult, and even brutal. They decry the apparent absence of God. They take notice when circumstances seem to say that God is not good. They cry out to God for comfort and care and wrestle with their doubts about God's loyal, faithful love. The Psalms operate in the certainty that God does allow his people to experience great pain, even if we don't always understand the reasons why. And I guess in some ways, that's why I actually really love and am drawn to verse four of Psalm 23 because it's real life. It acknowledges pain and loss and uncertainty and disappointment. It's normal to not only the, the human experience, but normal to the experiences of people who follow Jesus. In short, we all walk through the valley of the shadow of death. It happens to David and it will happen to us. You know, the other day, <clears throat> as part of preparing for this, again, I was messing around with the wording of this verse a bit, and I came to the conclusion that if I could just remove four words, it would reflect the raw nature of my experience and probably the human experience. Those four words, even though and no evil, it looks like this. I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I will fear. Now, I suppose I can't speak for everyone, but I can say that I am prone to fear. I don't know if I can say why for sure, but it probably has a lot to do with wanting, not wanting to experience any pain of any kind. So, when I sense that the possibility of pain is present, I try to do everything I can to avoid that pain. The problem is, in many, or could I say most cases, there's not much I can do about that. When I sense that I'm walking through the valley of the shadow of death, whatever that looks like in my circumstances, I fear. It's a normal response, and it's okay to be honest about that. Now, that doesn't mean it's helpful or healthy for me, but it's a basic human response, okay? But let's be true to the text. David did not remove those four words. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. David's comfort in the valley of the shadow of death is found in the words, you are with me. That makes sense. When fear comes, the last thing we want to do or need to do is find ourselves alone. Our granddaughter is named Delaney, and uh, we had her over for a sleepover recently. And she's almost two, and she's having these little challenges with going to bed at night because she doesn't want to go to bed at night. So grandpa and grandma have her and we're singing and we're doing this and we're doing that and we're going through the routine. And then she will stall, like most kids. More singing, grandpa, more singing. Grandpa, more milk. Grandpa, potty. So we sing, we read, we pray, we go potty if we need to. We get more milk sometimes and we put her to bed. And then she says this, with tears, Grandma here, Grandpa here, door open, Grandma here, Grandpa here. So we stay for a while, and then we found a way to sort of slowly move our way out as she calms down. But the next morning at 4.50 in the morning, crying, Grandpa here, Grandpa here. So what comforts her? 
It's when someone stays. Grandpa, I'm comforted when you're with me. I think that's the human condition. We don't want to be alone. So let's not just take David's word for this. Does God say elsewhere in scripture that he is with us? Well, buckle up. I'm going to go through this quickly. Genesis 3, it paints a picture of what God's intention was, that God and man would dwell in the garden together. So with me, check. Joshua 1.9, as God is commissioning Joshua as the new leader of Israel and the one who will lead them into the promised land, he says, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. With me? Check. Isaiah 41.8, even after predicting that Israel would fall to Babylon, the words of God through Isaiah are, fear not for I am with you. Be not dismayed for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. With me? Check. Matthew 1.23, when the angel appears to Joseph in a dream, telling him that her pregnancy, Mary's pregnancy, was from the Holy Spirit and what to name the child, this is what he was told. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. With me? Check. Matthew 28.20, 20, when Jesus commissioned his disciples to go and make more disciples, his final words are, and behold, I am with you always to the ends of the age. With me? Check. And then Galatians 2.20. Paul takes it even one step further. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no, no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. With me? Check. Okay, okay, okay. You're probably at the point now. I get it. It's, it's there. The Bible is clear that God's intention and his promise is to be with us. But I'm struggling. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. But I find myself cautiously and respectfully asking, so what? David, how does this promise from the shepherd help you practically? I remember my son, uh, Josiah, was with me at a place called Carowinds down in South Carolina. It was a carnival place, and we were going to go on a... a roller coaster called the Afterburner. He, I can't remember how old he was, but he had not been, not been on it before. And so myself and my son Justin and Josiah are in this thing. And it's one of those ones where your legs dangle. And then, of course, the um, secure stuff comes down over top of you. And there's lots of noise and music playing and so on. And all of a sudden I hear, I'm scared. I'm scared. I'm scared. I'm scared. I'm scared. I said, Josiah, I'm, I'm here. I'm here with you. I'm okay. We're going to be fine. I've been on this. We know, you know, I know how it ends. We're going to be fine. I'm scared. I'm scared. I'm here, Josiah. I'm scared. We start moving up the top, the hill. We get to the top of the first drop off. I'm scared. I'm scared. I'm scared. And then we go down. Interesting. Once we got to the first loop, all I heard was, yee-haw! All of a sudden, his attitude had changed. So I thought, well, it's because dad's with him, right? But the reality is, when I asked him, Josiah, did that help you, that I was with you? He said, no, not really. Because <laughs> dad, you weren't big enough. You're not big enough that if anything went wrong, you'd make any difference. We would just die together. How does God being with me then Help me in the valley. Well, we can say he's big enough, but practically? Nudge your neighbor for a second. Stop the video if you can. 
if you're with somebody and you're watching, and just ask that question. How does God being with me actually help me in my valleys? Now, as I wrestled with this question, one of the conclusions I came to is that it comes down to trust. Do I trust the shepherd? Specifically, do I trust that the shepherd will take care of whatever it is I think I need him to take care of? Trust me. Let me see if I can illustrate. Okay, now I'm going to wander into some dangerous territory. Driving, okay? Now, my wife, Dorith, and I drive a lot together. And you know the scene. Husband's driving along, having a great time, minding his own business, listening to the tunes, or maybe just spending some quality time in his nothing box. Suddenly, and without warning, the tone, the urgency. Honey! What, what, what? Did you see that car? Well, of course I did. Well, then why didn't you slow down? I, I, I did. Do you want to drive, hun? It's funny how when we do it done premarital, I mention that illustration and guys just roll their eyes. But the reality is, at one time it got so bad that I just said, fine, I'm going to stop driving when we're together. You're going to do the driving. Now, I needed to grow up a little bit. But anyways, full disclosure, I think as we've talked a lot about it, there's two reasons she does that. There have been a few, okay, more than a few times where she has saved my bacon. Hey, hon, I admit it, full disclosure. And secondly, she just doesn't want to die while I'm in my nothing box. So conclusion is that my track record with Doretha and my driving makes it hard for her to trust me. I think we often find ourselves asking this question of God. I know you are with me, God, but can I trust you? Can I trust you to provide me with enough money to cover rent this month or with those oncology results? And if they're negative, can I trust you to bring healing? Can I trust you to restore my relationship with my kids? Or can I trust you to get me out of this depression and give me a purpose and a reason to live? Can I trust you to provide me with the community that I so long for? Can I trust you with the difficult realities of aging? Can I trust you with my addiction? Can I trust you with the court case I'm in? Can I trust you in infertility? Can I trust you with the pain of my loss? Now, I'm going to tread carefully here. But with my limited, flawed, and somewhat self-focused human perspective, sometimes it seems that God's track record makes it hard for me to trust him. Because I didn't get what I thought I needed. Don't get me wrong. I can give you lots of examples where he has blessed, and he has stepped in, and he has helped us during difficult times. But sometimes he answers my prayer with a no when I really feel I need him to say yes. When I'm walking in the valley, but I'm not sure I can trust him to do what I think he needs to do. So I'm left to ponder this mystery. I try and work it out. How does it all work? I mean, God is sovereign, but he's given us free will. How does this impact the circumstances I'm facing right now? How does it impact the difficulties that we might call walking in the valley of the shadow of death? How does original sin and the brokenness of our world play into this? I mean, I want to trust the shepherd, but sometimes that means accepting that what I think he can do and what he will actually do are two different things. Though I don't understand it, will I trust what he is doing? It reminds me of the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel chapter 3. These are three young men, 
They were captured in the exile to Babylon, and as young men, they were taken away from everything familiar, exiled to Babylon, and they were put into Babylonian culture because they were smart and seen as leadership material. One author even believes that one of the costs for these guys was that they were made into eunuchs so that they would not be a threat to the royalty of the women of the royalty. These men who had paid such a big price and where God hadn't stepped in, stayed true to their God and rose to a place where they were appointed as overseers of the affairs of Babylon. As one author put it, they were thriving in Babylon. One day the king, Nebuchadnezzar, gets this brilliant idea. I'm gonna make myself a statue and we're gonna get everybody to fall down and worship it when the music plays. Well, these three men, loyal to their God, refused to bow. Despite all the challenges they had experienced and the threat of a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day, they were loyal to their one true God. They get ratted out, and of course the king goes ballistic. Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you're ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every other kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into the burning, fiery furnace. And then the challenge. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? What's their response? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able, catch that, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, or in the NIV it says, even if he does not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods, or worship the golden image that you have set up. Wow. How do you get there? They must have known this God intimately, and they must have trusted him, even in the difficult times. It doesn't say anywhere. Maybe they had fear. I don't know. But I long to have that kind of faith in the good shepherd. I want to have the faith that his presence would silence my fear and bolster my confidence. So what helps me build that confidence and faith? I wanna give you three short, simple prayers. Prayer number one, Lord, help me live in awe of your credentials. I'm a big Marvel fan, or have been in the past, I'm not sure I am now, but I love it. The Avengers movie, 2012, there's a scene where the Hulk and Loki are having a, a, a duel, and it, there's just this, this, this tension going on, and, and Hulk is about to take out Loki, and Loki says, enough! You are, all of you, beneath me. I am a god, you dull creature, and I will not be bullied by, and then it stops because Hulk grabs him by the leg and just ragdolls him. Pa, 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 pa. Loki's left in the, lying in the dust, and Hulk walks off with a scowl and says, puny god. We have no puny god. What are his credentials? Colossians 1, 15 to 17, if you really ponder them, leave no room for a puny God picture. Verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created 
in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. I don't know if you remember back, but Nathan talked about it, the handiwork of God rather than the handiwork of man. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Those are the credentials of the shepherd we're talking about here. He's no puny God. So Lord, help me live in awe of your credentials and not try and make you my-sized. Second prayer. Help me live in awe of your sacrifice. Colossians 1:18, right after that passage we just read, goes on to say, and he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil things, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to do what? In order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. The sacrifice that the shepherd Jesus made for us we ask the Lord to give us an awe of that rather than just go, yeah, I know. Yeah, I know about the cross. Yeah, I know about the resurrection. If somehow we have a deeper understanding of what Jesus has done, then we understand not only his power, but we understand the depths of his love for us, his creatures, his understanding of how little we are in control and how much we need him and how far he was willing to go in order to provide what we needed. And then the final third prayer, help me live in awe of our final destination. Now, I don't want this to seem trite, but we are all, and far as I see it, we're all walking the valley of the shadow of death. No one from this room, wherever you are, whatever, wherever you're watching this, you cannot escape death. This world is not our final destination. Look what it says in 1 Peter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has rescued us. Pardon me, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, valley of the shadow of death, so that the tested genuineness, genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Bottom line? We can't even get our heads around what's to come. And yet that simple prayer, Lord, help me to be in awe of what's to come so that I don't hang on to what I have here so tightly, but rather trust, Lord, as you walk through this place, we have a destination. Or Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, 
and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. You are with me. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. That is the way it was supposed to be at the beginning and that's where we're headed. Yes, he's given us the Holy Spirit. Yes, he walks with us through everyday life. And yes, we are going to a place. There is a day coming when we will be with him forever. And then what will he do? He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. If I'm honest, I long for that day. But sometimes I forget about it. Because I'm not really sure. I'm not really sure what it will be like. But if I look at these, I go, Jesus, give me the ability to live with eternity in mind. So I want to be clear. These are not three magic bullets that will immediately take away all your fear and ensure that the shepherd will give you what you think you need. But rather, they're simply what I would call trust builders. When I'm growing in awe of God, I think I will be more willing to trust him in the valley of the shadow of death. He's promised to be with me. So the question kind of shifts subtly. Instead of the question, can I trust God? My prayer is, is that we will move to a place where we will ask the question, will I trust God? 